everyone. This is Jeff Kralowitz from Argus, and we'd like to welcome you to our podcast on one of the trends that are shaping the global crude markets. With me today is Tom Reed, the lead developer of our news coverage in China, and more recently of our market coverage in the exceptionally liquid crude markets that have sprung up in the maritime province of Shandong. Uh, so welcome, Tom. Hi, Jeff. Maybe the best place to start with this would be a, a quick history on how the mix of state-owned and independent refiners has sprung up in China. And, and especially, I think people would be interested in how Shandong has become such an active importer of crude. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, uh, historically, of course, uh, China's Communist Party has uh, maintained control of the commanding heights of the economy, um, a central uh, pillar of which has been the energy industry. Um, through a, a handful of very large state-owned firms, uh, chiefly Sinopec, PetroChina, uh, Sinuk, which focuses on offshore drilling, uh, and Sinochem, uh, which was uh, mainly a trading company, a commodity trading company. But a, a few years ago, the government uh, deregulated crude imports, and that allowed uh, a load of small independent refiners, which had grown up around one of the uh, Sinopec oil fields in Shandong province in the north of China, just near Beijing, uh, to begin importing crude. Uh, and that, that obviously diversified China's um, oil sector quite considerably. And then more recently, a clutch of very, very large, primarily textile producer companies, um, Rongsheng, Hangli, uh, also Shanghong. Uh, these, these companies have opened massive new, very, very integrated downstream refining and petrochemical facilities designed mainly to pr produce uh, feedstock for PTA plants, and they have also become significant crude buyers. Uh, the independent refiners, though, which you mentioned in your in your intro there, uh, used to be known as teapots. Uh, that is, I suppose, a, a term that is still common currency, but it's not one that they greatly appreciate um, because in many cases, you know, they're quite sophisticated uh, operations with deep uh, refining conversion capabilities and international trading arms. So we tend to uh, refer them as uh, to them as independent refiners and we differentiate the independent refiners. Uh, those are the typically small scale, unintegrated refineries in Shandong and Liaoning province further to the northeast uh, from what we call other greenfield refineries, which are the newer, larger plants of the type, uh, I suppose, uh, typified by the Rongsheng uh, or the Sinuk big refineries there. So that that has uh, really changed the landscape of uh, China's oil market, because when the independent refiners of Shandong province went out, uh, were allowed into the market to buy crude for the first time, you know, they didn't have that in sort of in breadth of international experience, which their larger state owned peers had. So they very much wanted cr uh, trading companies to deliver crude to Shandong port. They didn't want to go into the North Sea market and figure out uh, you know, the, the various CFD mechanisms and all that kind of thing. So they, they said, just send the crude here. We just want you to price it at differential to ice Brent, which is really nice and straightforward. Uh, and we will we will pay you usually a premium to ice Brent crude futures just to deliver that cargo of crude uh, 
uh, to ports around Qingdao in Shandong province. And, and the growth in demand that we've seen there has been absolutely uh, astronomical. And Shandong now accounts for usually between uh, 30 and 40 percent of China's total crude imports. And let's not forget, of course, that China is the largest crude importer uh, in the world. And Argus has been very much at the forefront of pricing uh, that new market, developing pricing solutions for trading companies looking to supply crude to independent refiners. Wow, that's that's a lot for us to jump into here. But thank you for for that overview. One of the uh, the big takeaways that I take from that and something that was surprising to me for a while was just the level of sophistication of some of these independent plants and their ability to take crude really from from all over the world. But I guess the uh, top of mind right now is how China, Asia and the rest of the world is responding to COVID and uh, how badly demand has been hit by COVID. And we are seeing some stories of healthy returns to economic activity in China. And I'm just wondering what that's doing to China's uh, interest in buying crude again. COVID obviously hit uh, China uh, harder and earlier than the rest of the world. Um, So we began to see uh, China go into lockdown in late January um, and in February, a very, very uh, dramatic contraction in demand, which you've now seen kind of uh, spill out into the rest of the world. Um, and refinery runs there, which was quite, quite a good kind of measure of the strength of, of prompt demand for oil, uh, essentially fell by about two and a half million barrels a day between January and February. So uh, in outright terms, you know, that meant that crude runs in China had fallen from maybe 13 million barrels a day to slightly over 10 million barrels a day uh, over the course of February. But demand rallied, you know, very, very quickly as China came out of lockdown. And part of that, interestingly enough, was because uh, the government still controls uh, pricing for fuels at the pump. So gasoline, diesel, it sets a, a cap on pump prices. Um, and as part of the mechanism it uses to set those pump prices, when crude prices fall below $40 a barrel, it stops adjusting prices. Um, so even though demand was quite low um, on paper, uh, you had this phenomenal refining margin when crude prices went down to about $20 a barrel. You essentially, you know, you were looking at margins of $20, $30 a barrel. And that that uh, triggered a huge increase in crude purchasing, understandably. Um, and because it's a long haul market in China, it trades for usually uh, three months ahead. They were buying crude in February for delivery in May. And we saw that in the data for uh, for May, which recently came out. We saw record crude deliveries to China in May. And we expect that growth in demand to continue through uh, June and July. Well, great. And I assume that there are some favored grades that get delivered regularly into the Chinese coast. Which are, are those? Uh, the main grades favored by independent refiners uh, tend to be quite sweet and quite distillate rich. And that that's historically been because uh, diesel uh, gas oil has been the main output of the independent refiners. And they've tended to lack uh, maybe the same extent of the hydro treating capacity that some of the larger refineries have. So, uh, we um, 
have managed to capture pretty uh, amazing liquidity for the grades that we uh, launched assessments for in 2018. And we're now assessing prices for five grades, all of which have had pretty amazing liquidity. We've got Russian Esplo Blend, which is the only short haul grade in there that comes out of the Far East port of Cosmino in Russia and uh, sails round uh, about five days to Shandong province. Uh, Jeno from Congo in West Africa, Oman from the Middle East, which is a relatively sour grade. Uh, this new uh, North Sea grade, Johan Sverdrup from Norway, very, very uh, popular, very uh, huge demand we've seen for Johan Sverdrup. Um, but the main grade, I guess the baseload grade, you could say, is, is Lula from Brazil. And certainly when we were looking at the number of deals done that went into our assessment uh, in May, Chinese refiners in total on a delivered China basis bought around about 800,000 barrels a day of Lula for, for delivery over the summer. That is a staggering amount of Lula. I mean, that's pretty much, you know, that's, that's a large, large chunk of Brazil's exports. And, and I would say probably the majority of the country's pre-salt offshore production of medium sweet crude. And, and uh, particularly interesting for us, price reporters, the price of Lula is not particularly transparent at the Brazilian coast, but it appears that it's very actively and openly traded at the Shandong coast. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, you know, the same is true of Johan Sverdrup, uh, where there is uh, there are very, very few deals uh, for Johan Sverdrup taking place in Europe. And all of the real price transparency that we see in the market is on a delivered China basis, both for Johan Sverdrup, our new assessment and for Brazilian Lula. And, you know, we, we, we get uh, phenomenal degrees, uh, I think, of, of deal disclosure there, which which really underpin, I think, the uh, robustness of our assessments. And you can see how those differentials to ICE Brent have uh, just gone up dramatically, far more steeply, actually, than the underlying flat price. In the end of April, uh, some of these grades were trading at $5 under Brent, and they're now $3 above Brent, which is a really big swing in price. And so as, as we uh, talk here, I'm sitting a few miles away from the Houston Ship Channel, and there is lots of U.S. crude that would love to go to China. Do you see U.S. grades gaining much foothold in the Chinese market this summer or beyond? That is a very interesting question. Obviously, we had this phase one of the trade deal between China and the US uh, happen in January before COVID hit. Even then, I think uh, there is a view, a very defensible view that this was mainly a political arrangement, um, that a lot of those numbers were not really very practical, even at uh, prices in July, because it was based on a, on a sum of money, not a, a volume of crude. And as the price fell, uh, the implied volume of crude that China would have to buy, crude or LNG, uh, has increased dramatically and almost certainly unrealistically. <laughs> the idea that China could hit those uh, targets implied by the phase one deal, I think, is pretty unlikely. Where U.S. crude uh, goes to China, it'll go to China because it's pricing very competitively. And we did see that um, when the uh, price war started after that failed OPEC plus meeting in Vienna in March, we saw a lot of competitive discounting of barrels into China. And for a while, US Mars did become the most attractively priced type of sour crude that was trading into China. That's not happening lately. It's, it was a kind of a brief flurry of activity. But we will, I think, see quite a large chunk of 
of U.S. crude delivered to China in July. I'm not sure whether that will be sustained, not least because the relationship between Beijing and Washington has obviously deteriorated quite dramatically since uh, that deal was signed. And I think a lot of refiners now will be very cautious about buying U.S. crude in the current political climate. Great. Yeah, that wish we had a clearer crystal ball there. We did talk a little bit about pricing, but what do you see about the uh, the pricing of imported barrels at, at the Chinese coast? And particularly, I guess I wanted to, to ask you about this INE futures contract that the Chinese launched a few years ago. Uh, how are people using that and what's the delivery mechanism for this physically delivered contract? That's an interesting question because uh – I think China, like Russia, you know, is very keen that it not be a a price taker, that it establish a kind of unique uh, local benchmark and, uh, and, you know, other grades would price uh, differentials to that benchmark. It hasn't really taken off. It's become more of a sort of a, a retail instrument. Uh, there's quite a lot of trade, you know, daily trade volumes. Pretty impressive on the INE futures contract, rather lower um, open interest and actual physical delivery. And where uh, there is interest from the trading uh, community, it seems to be mainly occurring when a large price discrepancy appears between the INE market and the and DME Oman prices, which is another medium sour benchmark. Um, and Omani crude is very much seen as the baseload grade for delivery into INE tanks um, due to some uh, a shortage of storage space. When when COVID struck, the premium of INE to DME prices went absolutely ballistic. It went to sort of $14 over DME prices, and that did attract a certain amount of interest. But the trouble was, of course, that uh, there weren't any tanks for sellers to deliver that crude into. Uh, so the INE has been scouring the country to try and locate and secure additional storage tanks for traders to deliver crude into. It's been relatively successful in doing that, I would say, by allowing storage company operators to charge uh, very, very high uh, fees to store crude. Um, so uh, maybe five or six times the normal cost of storage. Uh, you would get if you lease your tanks for INE delivery. But even now, I, no one's really using it to price physical barrels uh, into the markets, more being used, as I would say. I mean, one doesn't want to say a speculative trading gambit, but it's, it's not really being used for physical delivery. Okay, well, thanks a lot for that, Tom. I think we have uh, time for one more question before the clock runs out on us here. And I just wanted to, to draw you out a little bit about this maybe surprising transparency that we see in the trade of crude at the Chinese coast. People don't automatically associate China with transparency, but uh, you and the team in Beijing kind of noticed this uh, active spot trade going on for cargos like Lula and others and uh, started doing daily assessments of them. And I guess my question is, how is that going and how are people using those prices that you are reporting on every day? Oh, well, we're, we're seeing a, quite a lot of interest in, in using those prices uh, to the extent that we've we've now um, just launched a, a crude report in Chinese, a daily crude report in Chinese that allows the local refineries uh, and trading companies who may not be so comfortable reading the report in English to, to, to look at our prices and scrutinize them in, in Chinese. We've launched that. That seems to be going going very well. Um, and so we, we hope that soon 
you know, people will, will, will be taking these as more than just, I guess, a reference for when they're pricing cargoes on a, fi on a fixed differential to ice Brent and start maybe a shift towards floating prices, which would probably allow them to to, to hedge a lot of those sales uh, better because it's a really risky, risky gambit that if you're selling crude three months ahead uh, on a fixed price basis. Trying to trying to hedge that is is currently quite tricky, but these obviously would allow people to roll with the punches and move with the market. This is all fascinating. I, I think that the world is watching China. It's the the leading demand center and surely will be for for quite a while in in crude and other energy commodities. So anyway, thanks for your insights on this. Uh, and thanks to everybody for joining us for this podcast. We hope to be back soon with another conversation about trends that shape the global crude markets. Thanks to everyone. Thanks a lot, Jeff. 